good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, Exodus chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. We'll take uh, really verses 1 through 12. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be walking through the encounter that I imagine all of us are rather familiar with is the story of the burning bush. I mean, I think this is one of those narratives that seems to creep into the minds of people, even if they do not believe on the Lord Jesus, even if they do not take the Bible as the word of God, though it be the word of God, despite their, uh, their opposition that this is one of those pictures, much like Noah's Ark or perhaps um, Jonah. And and in the midst of these, the burning bush is something that stands out rather clearly to us. But I'm also convinced that as we look at the narrative of the burning bush, we often overlook the actual symbolics, what is intended in God's presenting himself in the burning bush. So what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to walk through really three different major themes that we're going to find in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. I want to walk through the the reintroduction of Moses if you will. As we walk through Exodus 1 and 2, you'll find yourself really leaving Moses off, and then you have the introduction of God coming in and speaking as Blake walked us through last week in verse 23, and then as Exodus chapter 3 comes, we are reintroduced to Moses about 40 years after the previous account. So I want to examine what Moses is confronted with, what Moses is commissioned for, and then ultimately how Moses is comforted in the midst of that commission. I want to ask, I think, what is a really important question, which is who is the angel of the Lord and what is he speaking of in this account? And then finally, what I'd like to do is to walk us through the actual pictures of the burning bush, because the theme that is introduced in this picture runs the entire way through, not just the book of Exodus, but throughout the, really the entirety of the Old Testament and leads us in to the new. And so with that said, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? This is Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 1, and we'll make our way through verse 12. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 1, says this, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet for the place of which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring out my people, the children of Israel out of Egypt. 
But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Let's pray together. Father, it is an incredible thing that Moses was able to stand before you. Lord, in such a holy and incredible place with the glory of the Lord present, and yet Moses stands. And Father, it is an incredible thing that we, even in this moment of prayer, are able to draw near to the throne of grace and not be obliterated. Lord, it is only because of your grace and your mercy that we can draw near. It is certainly only because of Christ that we can utter, my Father. And so Father, I ask this day, would you re-woo us with these truths? Lord, remind us that we are not permitted to traipse into the presence of the holy, but instead, Lord, it was a costly price to be paid that you might bring your children near. And so, Father, I ask, Lord, even as we come in this moment of preaching, would you capture us yet again with the holiness of God, his splendor, his majesty, the reality that he is an all-consuming fire, and Lord, may we stand awestruck at the reality that we stand unconsumed. It's in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Jumping back into the narrative first is what I'd like to do, essentially by looking at the the narrative and essentially uh, walking through the concept of Moses entering into the presence of the holy. And just to kind of remind you of where we've been, as we've walked through the story of Moses so far, Moses has uh, been raised essentially as Pharaoh's daughter's son. And we have seen Moses essentially reject the prestige and the wealth of living in Egypt, dare I say, as the book of Hebrews says, that he has chosen to bear the reproach of Christ. Christ as opposed to experience and enjoy the wealth of Egypt. And in the midst of this, he looks out as he's walking his way through the, the land of the Hebrews, and he sees an individual who is being beaten and bruised. And as he sees this, he is filled with a rage. And I do believe that the rage is actually appropriate. But the reality is that instead of trusting in the God to, in, in the true God of Israel to deliver, he essentially devises a plot so as to murder this man, to seek vengeance in and of himself by looking this way and that and making sure that he will not be caught. Moses then aims to deliver by the strength of his own hand, which will be a major theme throughout the book of Exodus. And then in the midst of this, Moses is immediately confronted by the reality that he has been found out. And not only has he been found out, that Pharaoh then is seeking the life of Moses. Moses then says, I will flee, I will run. And he makes his way to Midian. And in Midian, he meets his father-in-law Jethro, who provides for him a wife, Zipporah. And over the next 40 years, Moses will ultimately be trained, not as a prince of Egypt, but as a lowly shepherd. And as he's being trained as a lowly shepherd, He spends 40 years laboring in this task. I do think it's rather interesting that this was seemingly a prerequisite of him being a ruler and redeemer of the people of Israel, that it must not be based upon worldly wisdom, but the humility that comes from being just a simple shepherd of a flock, that God uses a man like this to be the ruler and redeemer. But in the midst of all of this time, it comes to pass, as as chapter 3, verse 1 says, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And in the midst of this, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. 
And so what I want to walk through is really the three major themes that we find in this brief conversation that God has with Moses. And the first is this, that as God, as Moses enters into the presence of this bush, he is instantly met with the fear of the Lord based upon the holiness of God. Listen to what Exodus chapter three, verse five says. Then he says, do not come near. I don't want us to maintain that simple phrase because oftentimes as we are reading Exodus three, five, our presupposition is that Moses is told, do not come near, take off your sandals. And then after your sandals are off, you will then be permitted to draw near. That is not what this text says at all. There are two clear commandments. And I assure you that God is not telling him, take off your shoes and then you can come closer. He is essentially making a statement as to say that you will not come near to me, that there is something that is going to hinder your actual apprehension of the full glory of the moment. And he commands him to take his shoes off and to pause, not taking any further steps toward the holiness of God. Moses, I am convinced, gets the appropriate understanding of this. And the reason I'm convinced of this is Exodus 3, 6, as he's walking into the presence of the holy... Exodus 3, 6, we see Moses clearly abide by the commandments and then go further and say, and Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. That as he's standing in the presence of the holy, as this commandment comes to take off your shoes, to, to, to not draw near, he is immediately met with a very appropriate fear. That he recognizes that there is nothing in him that would give him permission to look at the holy or at bare minimum to look at the holy and live to tell the tale. Because the reality is, saints, there's no one who is permitted to enter into the holy of holies to gaze upon the full radiance and glory of God apart from some form of mediation, apart from some veil, as it were. And so as we see this, the very first thing that Moses is confronted by is the reality that God is holy and we can even see by his understanding of a need to veil his face that he is not. It is not unlike the very same occasion we find in the narrative of Isaiah when he sees the king high and lifted up. And his immediate response to this is, woe to me. He understands he has no right to be in the presence of the holy. He understands that apart from just the basic mercy of God, he would die in that place. And so we understand, and it is important for us to grasp this as we press forward in our text this morning, is that the holiness of God is a dreadful thing. And I do not mean that it is not lovely, that it is not beautiful, that it is not radiant. I am saying that for those who would approach it based in some flippancy or in their own worth, they would find themselves utterly destroyed. And we see this time and time and time again in the pages of sacred scripture. It is so loud to us that God is holy and we are not, that there is some great distance and divide between the holiness, righteousness, and beauty of God that our eyes are not able to behold it and live. Not behold it and not be scathed, but behold it and live. That literally the apprehension of such wonder, of such glory, would literally cause the heart to stop beating that we do not have permission to see, to behold, and survive. The holiness of God is a dreadful thing of which Moses is called to maintain his distance. And we must shout this and shout this loudly, understanding that no one has right to behold this. And at the very same time, loudly affirming with what the pages of the New Testament communicates to us. 
Because in this brief encounter, it's quite clear that Moses is called to not draw near, to keep your distance, to take the sandals off your feet. There is a hostile environment, for lack of better terms. You should not draw near lest you perish. But I do want to take special note of the language that we find in Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. It's important to notice the distinction because hear me, saints, the holiness of God has not changed from the Old Testament to the New. When we look at the Old Testament accounts and we see men like Uzzah die because they touched the ark, the holiness of God has not diminished as we enter into the New Testament. The holiness of God would still take the very life of anyone who would broach it in a flippant manner without a mediator or an atoning sacrifice. But Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 tells us this as participants in the new covenant, the covenant of grace. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22, therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through, his, through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Hear me. The holiness of God is just as dreadful in the New Testament as it is in the Old. It is rather unique and clearly lays out to us the beauty and sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ that as we draw near to the holy, there is not a command that says, keep your distance. There is a command that says, come and come with confidence. This is not a demeaning of the holiness of God. It is laying out to us the perfection of Christ's substitutionary work, that the work of Christ, the covering that he offers us in his blood, makes us fitting, fitted as it were, to enter into the presence of the holy, not with fear and trembling, but with hearts filled with assurance and with confidence. We enter in through the new and living way that is Christ's flesh. And as we do so, we do not enter with Moses with a hidden or veiled face, but instead we come saying, we will behold the glory of the Lord and we will behold it unabashed. Second Corinthians 3.18 says this, and we all, speaking of the Christian, the one who has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we all with unveiled face. Moses' response to seeing and beholding the holiness of God was to veil his face, was to immediately perhaps take the cloak, the hem of his cloak, bring it up over his face, and not look at the Lord lest he perish. The reaction to the new covenant Christian is not to veil the face, but to look deeply at the glory of God and be transformed from one degree of glory to another. It is such a clear and precise statement that we find. It is true, saints, and this should be our application from this text, that entering into the presence of the holy is a fearful and dreadful thing. But the beauty is the work of Christ being so sufficient, so perfect, so efficient that when we enter in, we do not enter in even as Moses entered into the presence of the bush. When we enter in, we enter in with hearts full of assurance and with confidence because the reality is that the blood of Christ has made us holy. Now we are able to enter in to that place. We do not enter in like the priest after many a ceremonial washing, hoping that they had done everything appropriate. We enter into the holiest places upon all of existence based upon the finished work of Christ. And we do not look to our own sufficiency. We trust in the fact that Christ is present in that place. And if Christ is present in that place, we being clothed with his perfect righteousness are able to enter in with the very same confidence. 
And so the first thing that Moses is confronted by is the holiness of God and the fearful reality of that holiness. The second thing that Moses is confronted by in this conversation is the reality that God is still expressing faithfulness to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob and demonstrating his faithfulness to his covenant. Notice what Exodus 3, 6 says. I am the God of your father. By the way, that's making reference to Moses' father, again, demonstrating that his parents were faithful and loved the Lord. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And in this very moment, that same theme that we have spoken of multiple times is continuing to be woven through the book of Exodus. God is continuing to demonstrate his covenant faithfulness to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, demonstrating that all the promises that God has made to Abraham, specifically in Genesis chapter 12, will ultimately come to fruition. And in this very moment, it is not only being communicated to Moses that God is faithful to the covenant promises that he's made, he is simultaneously communicating that that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are not dead men. Now, perhaps you would ask, that seems like a bit of a jump, but it is not a jump for our Lord because in Mark 12, 26 through 27, Jesus uses this very verse to lay out to the Sadducees, rebuke the Sadducees, as it were, by telling them that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not dead. Listen to Mark 12, 26 through 27. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Jesus in the midst of this interprets quite clearly what is being communicated. And as he does so, he is looking back at Moses and saying that not only is he demonstrating covenant faithfulness, we are not looking at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the sense that they are sleeping with their fathers. We are looking at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and saying they are alive unto God. That the reality is the resurrection is not a new doctrine that we find introduced in the New Testament. The resurrection is a foundational doctrine that goes all the way back to the book of Exodus. I would go further and say the book of Genesis where the blood of Abel is crying out. The reality is that God is not the God of the dead. God is the God of the living, that every single individual who comes to him truly does have life and live unto God. It's actually the premise of Romans chapter six where it shouts to us loudly that we are alive unto God if we be dead to sin. That is not just figurative life, that is actual life, meaning that there is never going to be separation from those who call on the name of the Lord from the Lord that they have called upon. There is always life to be had and all that life is is found in Christ and all that he has accomplished. And so Moses is confronted by the reality that God is continuing to express faithfulness to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is, I mean, Moses is confronted with the reality that God is the God of the living and not the dead. And then finally, Moses is commissioned with before, commissioned before the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord comes not only to confront Moses with particular realities, but at the very same time, he comes as the commissioning agent that will send Moses back to do that which he has called him to do. We notice this in Exodus chapter 3, verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. 
This is the moment where Moses is actually set up to be the ruler and redeemer, that he is being initiated and commissioned and being sent out for the purpose of bringing the people of God out of Egypt. And from this point forward, it is right for someone to say that God has set him up as the ruler and redeemer of Israel. Previously, we notice that Moses seemingly took this up based upon his own strength and was immediately met with his own insufficiency. From this point forward, Moses is not only commissioned, but he is is comforted by particular promises. The primary promise being this, that it is not Moses who goes in the strength of his own hand, but it is God who goes with Moses. Exodus chapter 3 verse 11 through 12 says this, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Immediately questioning his own sufficiency, which is not unwise, but I would say uniquely wise. And in verse 12, you have this wonderful promise given of God, but I will be with you. And this very promise of the presence of God will last with Moses up until his very dying breath and on into eternity. That God will be with Moses, that as he is commissioning him to go and to deliver the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, that God himself is the one who is ultimately going. We'll build that out more here in a moment. But not only is God going to comfort him by the fact that he is going to go with him and be with him in the midst of this work of redemption, this work of deliverance, we also see a particular promise given to Moses that communicates a great deal. The promise is specifically that he will come back to this mountain and that he will worship the Lord. But at the very same time, there are clear promises in between those two things. Listen to Exodus 3, 12. He said, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. Promise number one, you shall serve God on this mountain. God is not sending Moses to maybe deliver the people of Israel. God is sending Moses to definitively deliver the people of Israel. It is not a question of if this will occur. It is a certainty. And when God makes this promise to Moses, he's saying that you will come back here after you've delivered the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, and we will, they will worship upon this very mountain. It is so important for us to understand that God does not deal in ifs. When God sends someone to deliver, he is not sending someone to perhaps deliver. When God sends someone to, someone to deliver and goes with them in that promise, it is a certainty, it is a guarantee that these things will indeed come to pass. It is much like the text that we read in Matthew 1.21, that he shall be called Jesus for he will save his people from their sin. We do not have a question of if he saves his people from their sin or that he may save his people from their sin, but he will. In the very same way as Moses is commissioned out, Moses is commissioned out with the certainty of the presence of God, the promise of God that they will be delivered and that he will stand in this very spot yet again to worship the Lord. If I can make one simple application from this, the presence and promises of God have always been an emboldening agent for his people. I can imagine, and we do, certainly as we continue walking through this section of Scripture in Exodus, we do know he continues to be apprehensive, Moses does. But I can't think of any greater comfort, even than the concluding comfort that we find in the Gospels, than the reality that God has made particular promises and that God is going to be with us. I want you to notice what the Great Commission says, because it's not abnormal or it's not inconsistent with what we find here in Exodus 3. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the lofty task of the Great Commission is given, but I want you to notice the means by which Jesus is comforting his church as he commissions them out. First is this, and Jesus came and said to them, 
All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. The very first phrase is the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord, that all authority in heaven on earth has been given to him, that as we go, we go bearing the very authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Further, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. We are not looking at a commandment or a commission void of the power and promises of God and much less void of his presence. That when God commissions, he does not commission for the sake of abandonment. He commissions and as he commissions, he empowers that very mission with his presence and his promise. Promises. And this is meant to be the great comfort of God's people as they go forth aiming to fulfill the commission laid out. In our case, we find that quite clearly in the great commission of making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In Moses' case, the comfort offered to him is that he will truly, by the grace of God and the might of Christ, he will deliver the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, and he will stand yet again on this mountain and worship the living. God. These are meant to be the promises and the comfort of Moses as we launch into the rest of his narrative. It's important for us to notice the themes that are set up here. The holiness of God is laid out. The reality that he is an all-consuming fire. The reality that he is a covenant God. And lastly, the reality that he, he will ultimately be the deliverer. Now, that leads us into a rather important question as we enter into really the second point. Who is promising and commanding and commissioning in the midst of this narrative? Because we read this, and you'll notice, I think all of us would say with, with absolute confidence, that it's God who's giving him these promises. I mean, quite clearly, you notice the language quite, I mean, throughout the whole, throughout the whole section, it says, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him from the bush, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take the sandals off your feet for the place you were standing in holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. It's quite clear to us that it's God who is speaking here. But I do want you to notice a very clear point that Moses sees fit to lay out for us. Listen to what it says in Exodus 3, 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. The angel of the Lord is a rather unique theme that really does run all the way from Genesis. All right, we find our final reference to it in the book of Zechariah. But nonetheless, as we notice the, the, the clear language here is that the angel of the Lord is the one who is present and the angel of the Lord has appeared to him in a burning bush. And we'll deal with the burning bush last but I want you to notice a few things that are attributed to the angel of the Lord. It's really important that we grasp this. First, the angel of the Lord in Exodus 3, 4, the verse immediately preceding his appearance in verse 3, 3, is that he is called the Lord. And I want you to notice very clearly that we are not making reference to a simple phrase of superiority. What's actually being referenced is the divine name that in this particular text will be given in a few verses later. If you look at verse four, you'll notice that the way that we note that in our translations of the scripture is we use the capital L-O-R-D. That is to say that it's not just a statement of one who is superior. It is a statement that this is the divine being. And in verse four, that simple phrase, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, from where did the Lord see? He saw from the presence of the burning bush. The angel of the Lord had appeared and the angel of the Lord is then given the name, the divine name. Secondly, we see the angel of the Lord consecrates, that is he makes holy the entire area around him. Hear me, 
Mount Horeb is not holy because it is a particular piece of land that is holy. In this narrative, the reason that Mount Horeb has any holiness about it is because the angel of the Lord has appeared. It is not the dirt that is holy. It is the presence of God that is holy. And as the presence of God shows up in this place, then and only then is this mountain made a holy place and then dubbed the name the mountain of the Lord. But this angel of the Lord is so holy, so perfect, so radiant that his very presence consecrates everything around him makes it holy ground. The reason that we find Exodus 3, 5 is because the angel of the Lord has appeared. It says this, then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet for the place of which you are standing is holy ground. So we see that this angel of the Lord is called by the divine name. Secondly, we see that he consecrates, that is he makes holy the entire area around him to where Moses is not even permitted to draw near. Thirdly, we see that the angel of the Lord calls himself the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This is a bold claim. I want you to notice the bold claim that's being laid out here. The angel of the Lord is appearing, and time and time again, the way that Moses is articulating this is, when the angel of the Lord speaks, it's God who's speaking. It's the Lord, the I am, that is speaking and making claims and commissioning and comforting. And then finally, it is the angel of the Lord that reveals the divine name. Exodus 3.14 says this, God said to Moses, again, God from the burning bush says this, I am who I am. This is the first, this is the giving of the name of God. That through the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, although you will see references to the divine name throughout the book of Genesis, you must remember that it is Moses who is penning the book of Genesis. The first time the divine name is given, it is given from this burning bush. The first time it's uttered, it's uttered from the angel of the Lord. And as the angel of the Lord comes, he is not only ascribed the divine name, he consecrates the ground around him, that he calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it is the angel of the Lord, that is God speaking from the angel of the Lord, that he pronounces the divine name. Now here's the question. What mere angel can be called by the divine name, consecrate the very ground beneath them, and claim to be the God of the patriarchs? What mere angel? Have you read Hebrews 1? Hebrews 1 is so incredibly clear to us that there is not a single angel that has been called the Son of God in the way that Christ has. That the angel of the Lord are messengers, they're servants, and all of these things be true, but none of them have right to be called the divine name. None of them make the very ground on which they stand holy. None of them can claim to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There is only one that can make this claim, and it is the angel of the Lord, that is Christ the Lord. It is the second person of the Godhead who appears and condescends in the burning bush. Gill says this, not a created angel, but the angel of God's presence and covenant, the eternal word, the son of God. Pink goes on to say, the angel of the Lord was none other than the Lord Jesus and theophanic manifestation, meaning that as Moses is looking at the burning bush, he is clear and he is so precise in his language, not to just let us believe that it's God in some simplest form, but instead that it is the second person of the Godhead who has come to speak to him. He makes reference to say it is the angel of the Lord. And then he ascribes to him all that he is worth, which means divinity. He grants him the divine name. He grants him holiness. And he says, all of this flows from the angel of the Lord. 
And so why would Moses even identify the angel of the Lord? Because Moses is drawing attention to the uniqueness of the person to which he spoke. He recognizes that this is the Son of God. He recognizes that this is the second person of the Godhead, the eternal Son. It is very much like when King David says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David recognized that there is a Lord above him that is speaking to the Father. In the very same way, Moses recognizes that the angel of the Lord is coming, who is God, but is also the second person of the Godhead, specifically. And so we see him come, we see him drawing attention to the uniqueness of his person, and then secondly, we must understand that this purpose is to set up the reality that it is Christ who leads the people out of Egypt. Jude 5 is not just a simple reference given for illustration, instead it provides us great clarity on what took place at the Exodus. Jude 5 says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, after destroyed those who did not believe. Saints, the reality is deliverance began when the angel of the Lord appeared. And it was not coming up until the point that he entered the scene. And when the angel of the Lord showed up, it became quite clear that Moses and his strong hand would not be the primary agent of deliverance. The angel of the Lord would be. He would be the one that would deliver the people. He would be the one that demonstrated the might of God. And he would be the one who laid all the gods of Egypt underneath his boot. The gods of Egypt did not fear Moses. They feared the angel of the Lord. And as they feared the angel of the Lord, he demonstrated his authority, his power and dominion and all that would unfold from that point forward. So how then does the angel of the Lord appear? Or what better yet, why then? Why then does he appear? He, be- he appears first and foremost, according to Exodus 3, 7, he comes because he has seen, he has heard, and he knows the affliction of his people. I will not spend much time on this because Blake did a wonderful exposition of this last week. But notice the refrain that we find in Exodus 3, 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I want to go straight into this next point. He appears to show his condescension and intent to save. I want you to notice just the simple phrase that we find in here. Again, starting in verse seven, and the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. Listen to just the very first phrase of verse eight. And I have come down. Does this not immediately grab you Does it not immediately launch you forward into the New Testament at the condescension of our Lord? Saints, the eternal son has been condescending to his people throughout the entirety of redemptive history. He is the condescending, humble king. And even in this moment, we must recognize that the father most certainly has sent the son, even in this particular moment, to be the herald, to be the savior, to be the redeemer of the people of Israel as they are in Egypt. It is the son who condescends to us, and he condescends the very same way that we see it introduced in verse 23 and 24 of Exodus 2, because he sees their affliction, he knows their suffering, 
doing. He feels the weight of the taskmasters. He grasped these things in ways that we simply do not. Even Israel did not understand the extent of their suffering, but the Son of God did, the eternal word did, that they might have known the various weights upon their shoulders, but he knew them to the ounces, that as they felt the breaking of their very bones and the shattering of the very fibers of their muscles, God knew the names of every single fiber, that he knew every bone that would crack underneath that weight. The God of Israel knows them, and he knows them, and in the midst of that knowledge, he condescends. Because do not forget the fact that not only does he know their suffering, he knows their iniquity. He knows that they are sinners. He knows that they are wicked. He knows that he is the all-consuming fire, that he is the Holy One of Israel. How is it that he would go to them and redeem them? And these are all wonderful questions that we find answered in this particular text. But the beauty is that the angel of the Lord condescends to us. He condescended to them. And as he condescends, he condescends announcing his intention to save. Listen, and I have come down to deliver them. Again, loudly shouting to us. And remember that this is coming from the pen of Moses. Moses doesn't want you to think that he is the deliverer. In no way. Moses is not acting as the fallen angels and saying, look at me and how great I am. He's already identified that he is not the deliverer in chapter two. But the beauty is that as he's writing, he's saying, the son is the deliverer. The angel of the Lord is the deliverer. He is the one who saw your afflictions in ways that I could not. He is the one who knew your suffering in ways that I could not. He has the mighty hand, the outstretched arm that will be able to deliver you. And so he makes it clear that in his coming, in his revealing himself as the angel of the Lord, he condescends and he condescends with the intention to save. But he also condescends to be the very voice that commissions Moses to be a tool in his hand. Exodus 3.10, we must recognize that this comes to Moses most certainly, but we must also recognize that it comes to Moses from the angel of the Lord. He says to him, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So he comes to display his condescension. He comes to display his divinity. But further, he comes to commission Moses. So what must we glean from this? What what must we latch onto first? I'm out of breath. First, we must note the compassion of God. In the same verse, in the same section, in the same conversation, we go from Moses told to stand back and take off your shoes, don't draw near. And not two lines later, we see the compassion of our God to condescend. You notice the distinction, don't you there? That in the midst of this, he's saying, you can't come near me. You can't come near me. If you come near me, you'll die. And not only do we see this introduced at Moses, we see it run throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, that if you draw near to God in an unfitting manner, you will be crushed, you will be destroyed, you will be set ablaze in glory and heat that you know not. And yet at the very same time, this God who we can't draw near to condescends to deliver a people who are not worthy to draw near to him. This is born of strict, hear me, it's not born of worth, It's born of the compassion of our God. 
that he truly is the infinitely compassionate God who would condescend and relieve us from our suffering and our anguish. And in this, it's just clearly laying out to us the beauty of his compassion. It was a grand condescension for him to make this known to Moses. It was a grand condescension for him to deliver the people out of Egypt. But hear me, saints, how much more so do we see the compassion of our God when he takes on human flesh? And as he takes on human flesh, he does not condescend simply in language to speak to Moses in a way that he might understand or to permit Moses to stand before him. He comes to bear our own flesh like us in every way, yet without sin. There is no greater demonstration of the compassion of our God than in the incarnation of our Lord. When he comes to condescend among us, he comes as the compassionate Savior who sees a people totally unworthy and says, I'm going to go get them. And the, re- the only way by which I can go get them is if I condescend, take on human flesh, so that I will be able to redeem them, born under the law, and I might redeem them from the curse of that very law. And so we see his wonderful, his wonderful condescension in the midst of his compassion in his incarnation, but secondly, in a shadowy form through his coming and confessing all of these truths to Moses, making clear his compassion. Secondly, we must note that it is the angel of the Lord who is the deliverer out of the land of Egypt. We've made reference to this once, but I want to give you a second reference. First, Moses isn't the deliverer, though he is a chosen agent. We must not miss that. It's very clear that God has chosen Moses for this particular task, but Moses clearly identifies that he is not the true deliverer. But we must understand that it is not just in this narrative that we see this unfold. It is with the continuation of this narrative in the book of Joshua. Moses isn't the deliverer, though he is God's chosen agent. In the very same way, this theme continues in Joshua. Joshua isn't the conqueror. Joshua isn't the conqueror, though he is an agent in God's work. Notice Joshua 5, 13 through 15. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped him. By the way, same sentence structure that you find in Exodus 34 when God reveals himself to Moses in the cleft of the rock. Goes on. And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? I want you to notice that if this was a mere angel, that angel would have lost his mind the moment that Joshua fell on his face before him because he knows the consequence of receiving worship, because he knows that he is not worthy of worship. Any true angel knows that they are never to be praised. But this angel, this commander of the Lord's army, gladly receives the worship. Going on, what does my Lord say to his servant? After the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. You see, there's two major points that we find in entrance to deliverance and an entrance to conquest. Until the angel of the Lord condescends, there will be no deliverance from Egypt. Until the commander of the Lord's army comes, not a square foot of Canaan will be conquered. The angel of the Lord is the deliverer and the conqueror. The only means by which the covenant, the promises given to Abraham will come to fruition is if the angel of the Lord delivers them by his might. Now, lastly, 
we must note a rather interesting absence. If you turn to the pages of the New Testament, there is not one, not one citation of the angel of the Lord. It runs from Genesis all the way to Zechariah. It is a major theme that is literally just scattered throughout the pages of the Old Testament, often dealing with great acts of redemption. But as you turn to the pages of the New Testament, there's not a single reference to the angel of the Lord. And the reason I would mind you that there is not a single reference to the angel of the Lord is because he is called by another name in the New Testament. The angel of the Lord is, the, is none other, as we have already identified, the second person of the Godhead. In the New Covenant, we know him by the name Jesus. And as we know him by the name Jesus, the angel of the Lord is continuing to do the very things that he has done since the creation of the world. Redeem, reconcile, conquer, to preserve, to give grace, to bring people near to God. As we're paying attention in the pages of both the Old and the New Testament, the Old Covenant shouts to us, there is an angel of the Lord who is mighty to save, and the New Testament shouts to us, his name is Jesus. And as we lay hold of this promised Messiah, we see him deliver, him redeem, him conquer, and all on behalf of his covenant people. We come to the pages of the New Testament, and it shouts loudly to to us by the absence of the phrase, the angel of the Lord, it leads us to ask, what, where is he? What is he doing? And all throughout the pages of the New Testament is laying out his account, his glorious exodus that he is bringing to fruition in himself. In the new covenant, the angel of the Lord does not send mediators and servants. He is the mediator and the servant. Finally, let's answer one final question. Why a burning bush? I mean, sincerely, perhaps you're like me and you've read through this narrative 30 times and immediately you're grasped and appropriately so you're grasped by the reality that God has given his divine name. I am who I am. And this steals the show as it were. And absolutely it should. But we must simultaneously understand that God did not arbitrarily pick a burning bush. Some commentators say a bush would be the only thing present. Saints, Ex nihilo, if he wanted it there, it's going to be there. He didn't pick a rock. He didn't pick any of these things. There has to be some significance. There has to be some purpose. So I just want to lay out essentially a formula for you and hopefully answer the question because the, the thread that I believe is introduced in the story of the burning bush, the actual image of the burning bush runs throughout Exodus and really finds its conclusion, not in the Old Testament, but the New. So what are the important elements of this picture? If you notice what it says, Forgive me, in verse two, it says this, and the angel of the Lord appearing to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. I wanna give you the three elements that I think are so vitally important to our understanding of this. The first element is the flame of fire. The second element is the bush itself. And the third element is the phrase, and this is an important phrase, in the midst of. This is a loud question that runs throughout, not just Genesis and Exodus, but throughout all of redemptive history. And the loud question is this, how is it that God can dwell in the midst of a people? So let's build this out. First, we must understand that the flame itself is representative of God. And hear me, this is not up to interpretation. God himself ascribes the fire. He says, this is me. I'm appearing to you in the flame of fire. And so we must understand that from this very moment, Moses begins to consider God the all-consuming fire. Deuteronomy 4.24, he says this. This is Moses speaking. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Perhaps it is that you recognize the phrase all-consuming fire by Hebrews 12.28 that would continue to build this theme out for us. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and all for because 
our God is a consuming fire. And you will find other words describing the type of fire God is. For instance, devouring, all-consuming. This is the nature of our God, that He is holy. And essentially, this flame is an expression of His holiness and His glory. And how is it that anyone can stand in the presence of this glory, this all-consuming, just God, and live? And then we must note that God has chosen here a desert thorn bush. If there is anything I know, and I understand that I'm a city boy, but a really dry plant goes up really fast. That God has not chosen a rock here. He's intentionally chosen something that is feeble and frail, that should a single spark, should a single flame from the all-consuming fire of God touch it, it would instantly go up in a blaze like no one has ever seen. And then finally, we look at the statement in the midst of. In the midst of, just taking it from the book of Exodus, has two major themes when it's ascribed to God. The first is this, judgment. And the second is presence. And perhaps it is that we would take these as polar opposites. Listen to what it says about God going in the midst of Egypt. Exodus eleven four. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. God is an all-consuming fire. As he enters into the midst of Egypt, he goes and he executes judgment. He is the all-consuming fire, and he takes the life of every firstborn. Exodus 24, 15 through 17, a sight that is so bright and ablaze with judgment and authority, says this, Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. What is the purpose as we're looking at this brief statement in Exodus 24? It is showing them that you cannot touch this mountain. If you touch this mountain where the midst, the glory of God, the all-consuming devouring fire is, you will instantly die. It's a demonstration of the judgment of God. But at the very same time, interestingly enough, it is a demonstration of his presence. Notice what Exodus 25, 8 through 9 says, this phrase, in the midst. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive a contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense. Onyx stones and stones for settings for the ephod of the, of the, for the, for the breast, piece, breast piece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Or what about Exodus 34, 5 through 6 that says this, The Lord describes in the cloud, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the father on the children, the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Listen to verse nine. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin. Take us for your inheritance. Saints, how is it that God's presence can be simultaneously an all-consuming fire, destroying literally everything that is contrary to his nature 
and then have him dwell in the midst of a people. Why is it that Israel even survived the wilderness wanderings? How could Moses, I mean, I can imagine being an Israelite, having just seen Mount Sinai ablaze with glory, and if I heard Moses say, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, I would be struck with incalculable fear. I've already seen what he did in Egypt. I know that if you touch the mountain, you'll die. And I just heard Moses pray, hey, come into the midst of us. My immediate reaction is, oh, this is, this is over. This, the story ends here. Because the holy God, radiant in all of his ways, is gonna dwell in the midst of us and not one of us, not one of us is worthy to be in his presence. And it gives us, I believe, a single question. And this is the question of the bush. And I want you to notice that Moses asks this question. He introduces the theme. He introduces the question in this narrative. Listen to what it says. And Moses said, this is verse three, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And the answer to this question that runs throughout all of the book of Exodus and throughout redemptive history is one simple word blood. The reason that there is any discrimination in God's holy wrath and fury is blood. I want you to notice this, Exodus 12, 13. How is it, how does one survive the presence of God in Passover? Exodus 12, 13 is quite loud. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Why is it that the presence of God in the midst of Egypt did not kill the Israelite? Because there was blood on their doorpost. Because it said loudly that there has been something, something to atone for this firstborn son. The reason he lives is because there is blood on the doorpost. Or let's go further. How does one survive the presence of God at Sinai? How is it that Moses can say, dwell in the midst of your people? It's because that they live underneath the blood of the covenant. Exodus 24, seven through eight, before Moses says, come dwell with them, forgive their iniquity. This is what's spoken of. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The reason that anyone can survive in the presence of a holy God is because blood has been shed and God has regarded that blood in some capacity. It's very clear that we see inside of this blood of the covenant a clear and loud shadow that makes clear to us that there must be blood shed. So simple question, how can God continue to dwell in the midst of a wicked people? Well, inside of the narrative of the Old Testament, we see a shadowy system that shed blood and did so with great frequency. Hebrews 10, one through four. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, which pay close attention to verse four. For it is impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sin. And you would think that that would take an ax instantly to my whole argument. Because if I say that blood is the means by which one is cleansed and made holy, and that's the means by which anyone can dwell in the presence of God, how is it then that anyone in Israel, let's say the believing in Israel, 
could really be there, that they could, in, they could enjoy God in their midst? How is it that Moses was not devoured as he stood before the burning bush, much less would continue to meet with him like a friend? Because if the blood of goats and bulls cannot take away sin, then how is it that anyone can be in his presence? I want to lay out two simple things. First, the reason that any Old Testament saint was able to enjoy the presence of God was first because of God's patience. Turn in your Bibles to Romans 3 real quickly. Romans chapter 3 verse 25 says this, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Meaning that the people of Israel, let's just say Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Caleb, the list goes on. The reason that these men were able to enjoy, to enjoy the presence of God was because God was being patient. And he was passing over former sins. That means that he was storing up wrath. But he would not store up wrath forever, for he is in all-consuming fire. How then is it that God would execute justice, not denying his nature of being in all-consuming fire, and at the very same time, allow people to dwell in his midst? Romans 3, 23 through 25 makes it clear. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The reason, saints, that the people of the Old Testament were able to be in the very presence of God was not because the blood of goats and bulls were able to take away their sin. The the reason they were able to be in the presence of God is because God was expressing forbearance and patience toward them until the true Lamb of God would show up. And the moment that the true Lamb of God showed up, all of the wrath that he had stored in his divine forbearance was executed on the Son. Essentially, the blood of Christ worked retroactively for them. They were able to enjoy the presence of God because Christ would come, because Christ would make atonement for sin, and his atonement would be perfect. And they then got to enjoy the presence of the holy without fear of being consumed by his flame. And this is the very state in which we live. We live knowing that I am able, we are able as the people of God to enjoy his presence with not an ounce of fear that we might be consumed. For in the bush, he did not consume a single, a single atom. In the very same way, saints, he will not break a bruised reed. He will, not, he will not consume a single saint because Christ has paid and paid in full for all of the sins, trespasses, and iniquities of his people. What we find is something so clear. God is an all-consuming fire. And the reason that we are not consumed is because Christ drank the cup of wrath for us. All of the unquenchable, devouring fire of God was satisfied in his son for all of his elect, past, present, and future. Let's pray together.